Section 5 of Starlight Ranch and Other Stories of Army Life on the Frontier by Charles King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story 2, Well One, or From the Plains to the Point. Chapter 3, Danger in the Air. When the head of the cavalry column reached the bridge over Lodgepole Creek, a march of about twenty-five miles had been made, which is an average day's journey for cavalry troops when nothing urgent hastens their movements. Filing to the right, the horsemen moved down the north bank of the rapidly running stream, and as soon as the rearmost troop was clear of the road and beyond reach of its dust, the trumpets sounded halt and dismount, and in five minutes the horses, unsaddled, were rolling on the springy turf, and then were driven out in herds, each company's by itself, to graze during the afternoon along the slopes. Each herd was watched and guarded by half a dozen armed troopers, and such horses as were notorious stampeders were securely sidelined or hobbled. Along the stream little white tents were pitched as the wagons rolled in and were unloaded, and then the braying mules, rolling and kicking in their enjoyment of freedom from harness, were driven out and disposed upon the slopes at a safe distance from the horses. The smokes of little fires began to float into the air, and the jingle of spoon and coffee-pot and spider and skillet told that the cooks were busy getting dinner for the hungry campaigners. Such appetites as those long-day marches give! Such delight in life and motion one feels as he drinks in that rare, keen mountain air. Some of the soldiers, old plainsmen, are already prone upon the turf, their heads pillowed on their saddles, their slouch hats pulled down over their eyes, snatching half an hour's dreamless sleep before the cooks shall summon them to dinner. One officer from each company is still in saddle riding around the horses of his own troop to see that the grass is well chosen and that his guards are properly posted and on the alert over at the road there stands a sort of frontier tavern and stage station at which is a telegraph office and the colonel has been sending dispatches to department headquarters to announce the safe arrival of his command at lodgepole en route for fort laramie now he is talking with ralph it isn't that my boy i do not suppose there is an indian anywhere near the chugwater but if your father thought it best that you should wait and start with us i think it was his desire that you should keep in the protection of the column all the way don't you yes sir i do the only question now is will he not come or send forward to the chug to meet me and could I not be with mother two days earlier that way? Besides, Farron is determined to go ahead as soon as he has had dinner, and I don't like to think of little Jessie being up there at the chug just now. Would you mind my telegraphing to father at Laramie and asking him? No, indeed, Ralph, do so. And so a dispatch was sent to Laramie, and in the course of an hour, just as they had enjoyed a comfortable dinner, there came the reply. All right, come ahead to Phillips Ranch. Party will meet you there at eight in the morning. They stop at Eagle's Nest tonight. 
Ralph's eyes danced as he showed this to the Colonel, who read it gravely, and replied, "'It is all safe, I fancy, or your father would not say so. They have patrols all along the bank of the Platte to the southeast, and no Indians can cross without its being discovered in a few hours. I suppose they never come across between Laramie and Fetterman, do they, Ralph?' "'Certainly not of late years, Colonel.' It is so far off their line to the reservations where they have to run for safety after their depredations. I know that, but now that all but two troops of cavalry have gone up with General Crook, they might be emboldened to try a wider sweep. That's all I'm afraid of. Even if the Indians came, Colonel, they've got those ranch buildings, so loopholed and fortified at Phillips, that we could stand them off a week if need be and you would reach there by noon at latest. Yes, we make an early start tomorrow morning, and twill be just another twenty-five miles to our camp on the Chug. If all is well, you will be nearly to Eagle's Nest by the time we get to Phillips, and you will be at Laramie before the sunset gun tomorrow. Well, give my regards to your father, Ralph, and keep your eye open for the main chance. We cavalry people want you for our representative at West Point, you know. Thank you for that, Colonel, answered Ralph, with sparkling eyes. I shan't forget it in many a day. So it happened that late that afternoon, with Farron driving his load of household goods, with brown-haired little Jessie lying sound asleep with her head on his lap, with Sergeant Wells cantering easily alongside, and Ralph and Buford scouting a little distance ahead, the two-horse wagon rolled over the crest of the last divide, and came just at sunset in sight of the beautiful valley with the odd name of Chugwater. Farther up the stream, towards its sources, among the pine-crested black hills, there were many places where the busy beavers had dammed its flow. The Indians, bent on trapping these wary creatures, had listened in the stillness of the solitudes to the battering of those wonderful tales upon the mud walls of their dams and forts, and had named the little river after its most marked characteristic, the constant chug-chug of those cricket-bat caudles. On the west of the winding stream, in the smiling valley with tiny patches of verdure, lay the ranch with its outbuildings, corrals, and the peacefully browsing stock around it, and little Jessie woke at her father's joyous shout and pointed out her home to Ralph. There, where the trail wound away from the main road, the wagon and horsemen must separate, and Ralph reined close alongside and took Jessie in his arms and was hugged tight as he kissed her bonny face. Then he and the sergeant shook hands heartily with Farron, set spurs to their horses, and went loping down northeastward to the broader reaches of the valley. On their right, across the lowlands, ran the long ridge ending in an abrupt precipice that was the scene of the great buffalo killing by the Indians many a long year ago. Straight ahead were the stage station, the forage sheds, and the half-dozen buildings of Phillips's. All was as placid and peaceful in the soft evening light as if no hostile Indian had ever existed. Yet there were to be seen signs of preparation for Indian attack. The herder whom the travellers met two miles south of the station was heavily armed, 
and his mate was only short rifle-shot away. The men waved their hats to Ralph and his soldier comrade, and one of them called out, "'Why'd you leave the cavalry?' and seemed disappointed to hear they were as far back as Lodgepole. At the station they found the ranchmen prepared for their coming, and glad to see them. Captain McCrae had telegraphed twice during the afternoon, and seemed anxious to know of their arrival. "'He's in the office at Laramie now,' said the telegraph agent with a smile, "'and I wired him the moment we sighted you coming down the hill. "'Come in and send him a few words. "'It will please him more than anything I can say.' "'So Ralph stepped into the little room "'with its solitary instrument and lonely operator. "'In those days there was little use for the line "'except for the conducting of purely military business, "'and the agents or operators were all soldiers "'detailed for the purpose. "'Here at the Chug,' The instrument rested on a little table by the loophole of a window in the side of the log hut. Opposite was the soldier's narrow camp-bed, with its brown army blankets, and with his heavy overcoat thrown over the foot. Close at hand stood his Springfield rifle, with the belt of cartridges, and over the table hung two Colt's revolvers. All through the rooms of the station the same warlike preparations were visible, for several times during the spring and early summer war-parties of Indians had come prowling up the valley, driving the herders before them. But, having secured all the beef-cattle they could handle, they had hurried back to the fords of the Platte, and, except on one or two occasions, had committed no murders. Well knowing the pluck of the little community at Phillips's, the Indians had not come within long rifle-range of the ranch, but on the last two visits the warriors seemed to have grown bolder. While most of the Indians were rounding up cattle and scurrying about in the valley two miles below the ranch, it was noted that two warriors, on their nimble ponies, had climbed the high ridge on the east that overlooked the ranches in the valley beyond and above Phillips, and were evidently taking deliberate note of the entire situation. One of the Indians was seen to point a long bare arm, on which silver wristlets and bands flashed in the sun, at Farron's lonely ranch, four miles upstream. That was more than the soldier telegrapher could bear patiently. He took his Springfield rifle out into the fields, and opened a long range-fire on these adventurous redskins. The Indians were a good mile away, but that honest long tom, sent its leaden missiles whistling about their ears, and kicking up the dust around their ponies' heels, until, after a few defiant shouts and such insulting and contemptuous gestures as they could think of, the two had ducked suddenly out of sight behind the bluffs. All this the ranch people told Ralph and the sergeant, as they were enjoying a hot supper after the fifty-mile ride of the day. Afterwards the two travellers went out into the corral to see that their horses were secure for the night. Buford looked up with eager whinny at Ralph's footstep, pricked his pretty ears, and looked as full of life and spirit as if he had never had a hard day's gallop in his life. Sergeant Wells had given him a careful rubbing down while Ralph was at the telegraph office, and later, when the horses were thoroughly cool, they were watered at the running stream and given a hearty feed of oats. 
Phillips came out to lock up his stable while they were petting Buford, and stood there a moment, admiring the pretty fellow. "'With your weight I think he could make a race against any horse in the cavalry, couldn't he, Mr. Ralph?' he asked. "'I'm not quite sure, Phillips. The Colonel of the Fifth Cavalry has a horse that I might not care to race. He was being led along behind the headquarters escort today. Barring that horse, Van, I would ride Buford against any horse I've ever seen in the service for any distance from a quarter of a mile to a day's march. But those Indian ponies, Mr. Ralph, couldn't they beat him? Over rough ground, up hill and down dale, I suppose some of them could. I saw their races up at Red Cloud last year, and old Spotted Tail brought over a couple of ponies from Camp Sheridan that ran like a streak, and there was a Minikonju chief there who had a very fast pony. Some of the young Ogallalas had quick, active beasts, but take them on a straight-away run, I wouldn't be afraid to try my luck with Buford against the best of them. Well, I hope you'll never have to ride for your life on him. He's pretty and sound and fast, but those Indians have such wind and bottom, they never seem to give out. A little later, at about half after eight o'clock, Sergeant Wells, the telegraph operator, and one or two of the ranchmen sat tilted back on their rough chairs on the front porch of the station, enjoying their pipes. Ralph had begun to feel a little sleepy, and was ready to turn in when he was attracted by the conversation between the two soldiers. The operator was speaking, and the seriousness of his tone caused the boy to listen. It isn't that we have any particular cause to worry just here. With our six or seven men, we could easily stand off the Indians until help came. But it's Farron and little Jesse I'm thinking of. He and his two men would have no show whatever in case of a sudden and determined attack. They have not been harmed so far, because the Indians always crossed below Laramie and came up to the chug, and so there was timely warning. Now they have seen Farron's place up there all by itself. They can easily find out, by hanging around the traders at Red Cloud, who lives there, how many men he has, and about Jesse. Next to surprising and killing a white man in cold blood, those fellows like nothing better than carrying off a white child and concealing it among them. The gypsies have the same trait. Now, they know that so long as they cross below Laramie, the scouts are almost sure to discover it in an hour or two, and as soon as they strike the Chug Valley, some herders come tumbling in here and give the alarm. They have come over regularly every moon since General Cook went up in February until now. The operator went on impressively. The moon's almost on the wane, and they haven't shown up yet. Now, what worries me is just this. Suppose they should push out westward from the reservation, cross the Platte somewhere about Bull Bend, or even nearer Laramie, and come down the Chug from the north. Who is to give Farron warning? They're bound to hear it at Laramie and telegraph you at once, suggested one of the ranchmen. Oh, not necessarily. The river isn't picketed between Fetterman and Laramie, simply because the Indians have always tried the lower crossings. The stages go through three times a week, 
and there are frequent couriers and trains, but they don't keep a lookout for pony tracks. The chances are that their crossing would not be discovered for twenty-four hours or so, and as to the news being wired to us here, those reds would never give us a chance. The first news we got of their deviltry would be that they had cut the line ten or twelve miles this side of Laramie as they came sweeping down. I tell you, boys, continued the operator, half rising from his chair in his earnestness, I hate to think of little Jesse up there tonight. I go in every few minutes and call up Laramie or Fetterman just to feel that all is safe and stir up Lodgepole behind us to realize that we've got the 5th Cavalry only 25 miles away. But the Indians haven't missed a moon yet, and there's only one more night of this. Even as his hearers sat in silence, thinking over the soldier's words, there came from the little cabin the sharp and sudden clicking of the telegraph. "'It's my call!' exclaimed the operator, as he sprang to his feet and ran to his desk. Ralph and Sergeant Wells were close at his heels. He had clicked his answering signal, seized a pencil, and was rapidly taking down a message. They saw his eyes dilate and his lips quiver with suppressed excitement. Once, indeed, he made an impulsive reach with his hand, as if to touch the key and shut off the message and interpose some idea of his own. But discipline prevailed. "'It's for you,' he said briefly, nodding up to Ralph, while he went on to copy the message. It was a time of anxious suspense in the little office. The sergeant paced silently to and fro with unusual erectness of bearing and a firmly compressed lip. His appearance and attitude were that of the soldier who has divined approaching danger and who awaits the order for action. Ralph, who could hardly control his impatience, stood watching the rapid fingers of the operator as they traced out a message which was evidently of deep moment. At last the transcript was finished, and the operator handed it to the boy. Ralph's hand was trembling with excitement as he took the paper and carried it close to the light. It read as follows. Ralph McCray, Chugwater Station. Black Hill Stage reports having crossed trail of large war party going west, this side of Rawhide Butte. My troop ordered at once in pursuit. Wait for 5th Cavalry, Gordon McCray. Going west, this side of Rawhide Butte, said Ralph, as calmly as he could, that means that they are twenty miles north of Laramie and on the other side of the Platte. It means that they knew what they were doing when they crossed just behind the last stage so as to give no warning, and that their trail was nearly two days old when seen by the down stage this afternoon. It means that they crossed the stage road, Ralph, but how long ago was that, do you think, and where are they now? It is my belief that they crossed the plat above Laramie last night or early this morning and will be down on us tonight. Wire that to Laramie then at once, said Ralph. It may not be too late to turn the troop this way. I can only say what I think to my fellow operators there and can't even do that now. The commanding officer is sending dispatches to Omaha and asking that the 5th Cavalry be ordered to send forward a troop or two to guard the chug. But there's no one at the headquarters this time of night. 
Besides, if we volunteer any suggestions, they will say we were stampeded down here by a band of Indians that didn't come within seventy-five miles of us." "'Well, father won't misunderstand me,' said Ralph, "'and I'm not afraid to ask him to think of what you say. Wire it to him in my name.' There was a long interval, twenty minutes or so, before the operator could get the line. When at last he succeeded in sending his dispatch, he stopped short in the midst of it. "'It's no use, Ralph. Your father's troop was three miles away before his message was sent. There were reports from Red Cloud that made the commanding officer believe there were some Cheyennes going up to attack couriers or trains between Fetterman and the Bighorn. He is away north of the Platte.' Another few minutes of thoughtful silence and then Ralph turned to his soldier friend. "'Sergeant, I have to obey father's orders and stay here, but it's my belief that Farron should be put on his guard at once. What say you?' "'If you agree, sir, I'll ride up and spend the night with him.' "'Then go, by all means. I know father would approve it.'" End of Section 5